How many of you like Pixar movies? Some of you have seen some Pixar movies. So there's the one Pixar movie uh, about a rat that wants to be a chef. I think it's called uh, Rat Chef. Um, no, I know. It's called like ravioli or ratatatat, ratatouille. That's it. No. Um, anyways, yeah, in this movie, this, this rat wants to be a, a French chef because, you know, that's the movie that just needed to be made. That's what all the kids were wanting. Uh, you know, just before that, every kid was empty. Like, I just need to have a movie made about a rat that wants to be a French chef. Uh, but anyways, it seemed like a good idea to someone. And so at the, at the beginning of this movie, they're trying to uh, make, make you care about the, the rat that wants to be a French chef. And there's a part where the rat is talking about food and his love for food. And he talks about the ingredients. And he, he really gets into that. He's talking about these beautiful you know, piece of cheese and how great it is and the texture and the, the taste and the quality and other ingredients. And he talks about each of these by themselves. But then he says the, the magic comes when you, when you combine two, when you put them together. And then in the, the movie there's you know, animated fireworks and all this happening that something new, something beautiful happens when you combine these things. I bring that up just for this point. In uh, the section that we're going to read today out of Luke 18, there, there's two different sections of Scripture, and they're great on their own, but I think something really kind of special happens when we look at these together. The first section that we're going to look at, Jesus is predicting his, his death again, and he's telling what is going to happen when he goes uh, into Jerusalem. Now, this is the, the sixth time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus has done this letting him know that he is going to suffer. He's going to die. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? So in one sense, it's, it's not something new, uh, but it, it is good and it's important. Then after that, we have another uh, a miracle story. This is the last uh, miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of Luke. And there's another a blind person that he uh, opens his eyes, that causes him to be able to see, which is an am- amazing thing. We have seen this before in Luke as well. And so we're going to look at these, but I think something really interesting, really neat is going to happen when we think about these two things together. And I think there's a reason why Luke, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, you know, has these two things back to back. I think there's another meaning that the Lord wants us to, to realize and to pull out of this. So let's read this all together. And this is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. We're going to read verse 31 through 43. And I really do encourage you to have Scripture open with you. Uh, You're going to get more out of this message if you can keep looking at it. I really encourage you to have a paper version. Um, I just, my, my preference would be, at least for young people and kids, not to use an electronic version. I think it's too distracting. And maybe it's best for you as an example to them as well. But uh, we're not, we're not going to kick you out. But I encourage you to have Scripture in front of you open. Okay, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. 
And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is God's word. This is the message he has for us today. May he open our eyes to help us to see the truth that is here. So in the first section, when we look at this, we're going to see that uh, the disciples, specifically here the 12, the apostles, they could not see what Jesus was plainly telling them would happen to him. That's in verses 31 through 34. In verse 30, uh, we see this. It's it's kind of interesting when we we keep seeing this come up. It says, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. See, behold, notice, see what is going on here. And he's uh, going to tell them what's going to happen. This section, again, he he is heading to Jerusalem. That's why we have called uh, this second volume of Luke, uh, the, the journey with Jesus, it's his journey to Jerusalem. And in this whole section, actually starting at the end of chapter 9 and with 10, he is, he is on his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows why he is going there. He knows full well what is awaiting him in Jerusalem. And if he wanted to avoid it, he could just avoid going to Jerusalem altogether. Another thing, that I think we need to know here is what Jesus says. He says, we're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. We'll come back to this, but these are things that were uh, written by the prophets. These are are not surprises. This has been uh, ordained by God. This has been predicted from, from long ago. This has been God's plan. This is not something that Jesus is just making up. He is fulfilling Uh, this plan that God has set into motion. But look at the way that Jesus refers to himself here. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, what's kind of interesting about this is we might think, well, Jesus is the the Son of Man. Isn't he the Son of God? And our, our first inclination might be to think, well, Scripture refers to him as both the Son of Man and the Son of God, because he is both. He's, he's fully God, and he's fully human. He's always been fully God, but when he came down to this earth, when he became incarnate, he put on humanity, and he also became fully man. So now, ever since uh, he was conceived in uh, the womb of the Virgin Mary, he's been both 100% God and 100% man, and maybe that's what it means, why he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, it is true, he is both fully God, and he is both fully man. But there's something else about this term, son of man, and especially to uh, Jewish listeners, to their ears, what they would have heard and what they would have remembered. And this was a very distinct uh, Old Testament reference to the Messiah, to the one that was, uh, that was prophesied that he was coming. 
And this was something that especially it would have reminded them of the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And there's this section in here where Daniel is having this, uh, this, this vision of God. And let me, let me read this to you. This is the, the book of Daniel. And he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Okay, so it refers to God here as the Ancient of Days. This is an awesome, just a majestic vision that, that Daniel is having. It says, His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands and thousands served him. And, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and books were opened. So just imagine this. He's seeing this vision of, of God Almighty on his throne, the Ancient of Days, with tens, uh, beyond tens of thousands of uh, these beings, or angelic beings, you know, serving him, worshiping him. This awesome vision. But then if we skip down to verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So notice that. It's uh, the son of man. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him... To this other one that's coming before the Ancient of Days is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages uh, should, should serve him or worship him, which normally you only do that to God, right? And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel receives this vision and it was probably pretty difficult for him to figure this out. Because on one hand, you have God, uh, but then you have someone else that seems to have the characteristics of God being served and worshipped and given dominion that is distinct from God, but also seems to have the characteristics of God. And he's referred to as the Son of Man, and he's coming in, in the clouds. Now, later on, when Jesus is on trial before the crucifixion, they're going to say, tell us plainly, you know, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? He's going to make reference to this. He's going to say, you're going to see the, the Son of Man coming on the clouds. He's basically saying, yes, I am that one that is predicted in Daniel 7. And so when Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man, I think he is, he is identifying himself as this one that is prophesied, as this Messiah. And think of this, this one that is coming, he is the he is the all peoples and nations are going to serve him and worship him, given an everlasting dominion. All of, these, all of these things are going to happen. And if we keep that in mind, how much more amazing is it what he is going to say next? Because he's going to say, I, I'm headed to Jerusalem, but why am I headed there? And if you just, well, son of man, we know you're going to set up your kingdom. You're going to be worshipped. Everyone's going to bow down and praise you and, and lift you up. And basically he's going to say, well, for right now, I'm headed there for pretty much the exact opposite thing. Something very bad is going to happen first. I have another mission that I need to accomplish. 
at this time. But how amazing is it when we look at what he is going to say next, when we think of the one that underwent all of these things for us. Let's look at verse 32 and 33. And again, I hope you have scripture in front of you so we can look at this. On one hand, Jesus has said this before, but he's saying it again. And I think for us right now, what an appropriate time it is for us to really think about these things. I mean, we are a few weeks away from Easter, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And before that Good Friday, where we remember Jesus Christ going to the cross for us, his, his suffering, his, his death for us. So let's think about what Jesus is saying here. The, the Son of Man, this great Messiah, this, this coming King, but what is he going to do first? And we think about these, we realize Jesus, he knew exactly what was awaiting him. He knew exactly what was coming in Jerusalem. At first it says he would be delivered to the Gentiles. And this is just walking through the text. He, would, he was going to be betrayed by his own people. You know, on uh, Palm Sunday, we'll talk about the triumphal entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem. And at that time, everyone is, you know, they are spreading out their, uh, their cloaks and the, the palm branches. And uh, Hosanna, the, the, the king has arrived. But by, uh, before the week is done, they would have turned on him. And they'd be bringing him before the, the Gentiles. Not even just themselves, but the, the, the Gentiles. And turning him over to them to, to be crucified, to be killed. Take this one from us. We don't want him as our king. We want you, we want Herod, we want you, Pilate, we want you to take him and kill him for us. Hand it over to the Gentiles. And put under, under their earthly authority. It says that he'd be mocked. Think of how undeserving that was for Jesus to be, to, be, to, be, to be mocked. This one that created us, who's the ultimate, the king of kings, who he deserves our praise of our lips 24-7. He deserves the praise of our heart. And said he's going to, to mockery is the, the exact opposite of, of being praised. They're making fun of him. They're, they're, they're scorning him. And think of the things that they would do. You say that you're the king. Okay, they you know, get some kind of old you know, purple robe and they put it on him just to, to make fun of him. And I'll look at you after we, we beat you and we're, we're kicking you and doing all this. And we'll, we'll dress you up like a little pretend king. You know, they take a crown of thorns. You want a crown here? We'll, we'll make one for you out of thorns and smash it on your head and, and, and pierce your head so there's, there's blood running down. And they're, they're straight up mocking him, making fun of him, doing this. It says that he would be shamefully treated. It talks about them uh, just beating him, you know, hitting him, hitting him with rods, and, and then mocking him and saying, you know, prophesy who hit you. you. You're this prophet here. Just tell us which one of us just, just smacked you across the back of the head. Doing this to the Son of Man, the Son of God. Doing this. I think he was shamefully treated. You know, when, when they put him on the cross, he was, he was stripped bare. You know, sometimes when you see, you know, Christian art or you see, you know, as, as Protestants, we don't do crosses with Jesus on the cross, but if you've seen those, you know, usually Jesus is wearing some kind of loincloth or something. Uh, that's for our benefit. 
because you wouldn't want hanging in your church the state that he was probably actually in. I mean, he was put up there without the benefit of clothing. To, it was to shame him. It was to make fun of him. This was not to, to make him feel good This when they put him on the cross. It was to invoke as much just shame and humiliation as they possibly could. As we get closer to Good Friday, if we get closer to, to Easter, just realize this is, what, this is what Jesus did for you, what he was willing to endure. You know, and even if we stop just there, I mean, this would be bad already, right? They, they, they spit upon him, okay? It doesn't, it doesn't really hurt to, to be spit upon, but just think of the Think of what's supposed to come out of our mouths. I mean, what's supposed to come out of our mouths is, is praise to him. What's supposed to come out of our, our, our mouths is, is, is worshiping him, giving him, him glory. And instead they use their mouths to, to have some you know, just nasty saliva and, and whatever food is in their mouth and to, 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 to spit that on the king of kings, on the lord of glory. There with, with, with human saliva on his on his face being spit out upon him by 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 us he was going to jerusalem for that and he would be he'd be flogged i mean he was in the scriptural accounts it just it says this briefly he was flogged and we think okay that glad that's done i mean stop and think about what they were doing to him I mean, when they, when they beat him, when they whipped him, I mean, they would use what was sometimes called a cat of nine tails. It'd be this, this whip, so this long kind of leather whip, and at the end it's called the cat of nine tails because oftentimes at the end it would have um, more leather straps coming off at the end of it. And they would whip him with this. So they would kind of strip him down, tie him to a post, and then just keep hitting his back with this. But at the end of this, this, this whip... You know, just a regular whip can be bad enough and just breaks your skin and, you know, massively, you know, painful. But they would also take little, little hooks and they would embed it, you know, into uh, these, uh, the end of this whip. You know, sometimes little pieces of metal, pieces of glass, little hooks or whatever. So that when we're whipping, it would embed into the back in his flesh. Imagine just a bunch of, you know, a fish, fish hooks stuck into your back. And then they pull it. And so it just rips off flesh, chunks of flesh. And they just kept doing this. You know, the Jews had some certain rules when if someone was being uh, whipped or flogged, that uh, if so, there was a criminal that had this, that um, it needed to be less than 40, so usually they would stop at 39 to make sure they weren't going over. These are the Romans. He was handed over to the Gentiles. They didn't have any rules on this. They just, they just kept doing this until it was out of their system. You know, many people never made it to the cross because they died right there. I mean, they died of blood loss before they could even get to the, the cross because basically the skin and muscle on their back was, was gone. It was, it was torn up. And then after that, he's made to, to carry his cross uh, on that back. And Jesus saying, they're going to they're gonna flog me, and he'll be killed. And here it just says killed, but we, we know how he was going to be killed. And the way that the uh, Gentiles killed was by crucifixion. 
And crucifixion was, was literally the most excruciating uh, form of execution that the, the sick minds of the ancient world had come up with. I say most literally excruciating because the word, our word excruciating, literally means from the cross. Excruciating. The cross is right in there, from the cross. When they're hung on the cross, and it was bad enough, sometimes they would just uh, wrap them with cords and hang them up there. We know Jesus was nailed to the cross. And it was not designed to kill you quickly. I would, you would hang up there and you would have muscle cramps and you would slowly suffocate to death on, uh, as your lungs filled up with fluid. And as you're trying to pull yourself up for every breath, it would become just more and more painful. And Jesus hung there for six hours to do this. And I think as well, too, that the worst part was the part you, you couldn't even see with human eyes. Because I think there was something supernatural that was going on because Scripture tells us that while he was there, not only was he bearing this punishment, but he was bearing the, the curse that we deserve. It was laid upon him, the wrath of God that we deserve. He was absorbing, he was taking. I think there was a supernatural thing that was happening there as well. Jesus was going to Jerusalem knowing that all of this would happen. This was planned. This was not an accident. This was, this was deliberate. This was voluntary. This is what the Father had sent the Son into the world to do. And also, this is what Jesus voluntarily came to do. The Father and the Son are not of two different wills about this. They are of the, the same will on this. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all in agreement on this. Jesus came willingly. This wasn't some kind of divine child abuse. The, the, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, did this voluntarily. He was marching towards Jerusalem knowing he was marching towards his death. Not only was there these passages in the Old Testament about the, the Son of Man in the book of Daniel, but Scripture predicted also that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. If you read the book of Isaiah, starting in 52:13, and all of Isaiah 53, I mean, it talks about this. He was, he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid up upon him. This is Jesus' destiny. This is, he came to do this. He was marching to his death. The Messiah would be both the Son of Man and the Suffering Servant. But there is more. He says on the third day, he would rise. Death would not be able to keep him. He would not stay dead. He would be triumphant. He would be raised to life as well. So he tells him this. You think this is as plain as day. But then it says the disciples, they just, they couldn't see this. They did not get what was going on. Verse 34 says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. I think, well, how was it hidden from them? I mean, this, how could, if Jesus wanted to be clear on this, how could he really be more clear? He's laying out exactly what would happen to them. I don't know, did they rationalize it? Maybe Jesus, maybe he's being metaphorical here. 
I don't know. But I think the deeper truth is that there's something about us as, as sinners. There's a, there's a blindness that causes the truth to be hidden from us. That it might be right there. There might be a message that's clearly explained to us, but we can't see it. And it's the, the fault isn't because of the message. It's not because it's ambiguous. It's, there's something wrong with our eyes. And because of our sin, we don't see what's there. I remember as a kid being told that there were some older folk that, that couldn't see because they had Cadillacs on their eyes. <laughs> Later I found out it's, uh, you know, cataracts, uh, which I guess makes a lot more sense than, wow, they had Cadillacs on their, on their eyes. But that, that's part of our sinful condition. We have, we have sinful eyes that are, that are blind to the truth, that we can't see Jesus and what he, what he is saying to us. And the fault is not with the truth. The fault is we need to have our eyes healed. We need to have our, our spiritual eyes opened. Kent Hughes writes this. He says, Human reasoning says that every time a person sins, he or she will see more of his or her sin. But the opposite is true. Every time a man sins, he makes himself more blind, less capable of realizing what sin is, less likely of realizing that he is a sinner. For unforgiven sinners, darkness and light are the same. Their blindness makes it impossible to see. Sin is a, causes a blindness of heart, our spiritual eyes, and we don't see the truth. Now, on the other hand, Jesus, Jesus was heading to Jerusalem with his eyes wide open. He knew what he was going there to do. So we see that, and then we see Jesus encounter a blind man on the road. So the second section here will summarize it. The blind man he could not see until Jesus opened his eyes. So let's work through this again. It says, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now this blind man, he is in a condition here, he is pretty much the exact opposite of the rich young ruler. Okay, we looked before at the rich young ruler that Jesus talked to and said how, how difficult it is for a man like that to enter the kingdom of God because he has all his self-sufficiency and all this. And, and really, uh, for any of us, it's as hard to get us into the kingdom as it is to get a camel through the eye of a needle. Uh, that's impossible. Uh, it need, there needs a miracle to happen. You know, God needs to take us apart, pull us through the eye, and put us back together in order for this to happen. But what is it? impossible with man is possible with God. So the rich young ruler, he's got everything. He's got youth. He's got, um, uh, he, he's got wealth. He's got power. But if you're blind in that day and age. Yeah, you were a beggar. That was basically option one, two, and three for your life. And so this guy, he's sitting by the roadside begging. Um, we know from Mark's gospel that records this as well. It says his name was Bartimaeus. Now, if you're thinking, hey, maybe that's a name. I, if, you, if you're looking for a name for a kid, if, if you're expanding your family, Bartimaeus. I did read that the name Bartimaeus can also be translated son of filth. So that might be something you want to keep in mind. Um, 
It can also just mean son of Timaeus, too, and have different meanings, but uh, something to keep in mind. But Bartimaeus here, uh, he is, he's not living the good life, sitting by the roadside uh, begging. So he's sitting there, and it says in verse 36, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. So he hears this crowd, and what would happen oftentimes is in the ancient day, um, is when somebody of great importance, a celebrity, somebody highly esteemed would be coming to your city, word of that would, would spread, and people from the city would go out to meet that person and then travel with him into the city, kind of as an entourage to bring him in. I mean, in, in today's world, sometimes you hear that a, a celebrity is arriving at the airport, you know, and people will go there and, uh, you know, they'll have barricades and all the fans and celebrities are there to see the, uh, the, 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 the important person get off the plane. So this time, Jesus, he's, he's being pretty popular. You know, people are going out to meet him. He's got a big crowd coming with him into Jericho. And, of course, Bartimaeus, he, he can't see what's going on, so he asked, what is going on? There must be somebody important coming. What's all this about? And they tell him, he says, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Okay, Jesus is coming by. Notice what they call him here. Say, Jesus of Nazareth, because he was from Nazareth. Okay, that's, that's true. Uh, but notice how uh, the beggar here, Bartimaeus, how he responds when he calls out to Jesus. He doesn't just say Jesus of Nazareth, which is just, you know, basic, you know, facts here. Um, well, there's more behind it, but people probably didn't really see it. But uh, the way that Bartimaeus replies, the blind man here, shows that he sees something about who Jesus really is that maybe these crowds weren't even seeing yet. It says, verse 38, And he cried out, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. He's crying this out, and some of the people that are with him are, you know, trying to shield Jesus from this, you know, filthy, no good, you know, beggar here who obviously was, you know, sinful, and that's why he deserves to be, you know, blind and all this. And he's not, you know, Jesus, uh, he just, you don't need to be taking up time here with this beggar. So it says, and those that were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more. He, he just kept going. This was his heart's desire. He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. So this blind man, he's referring to Jesus here as, as Son of David. And, and that is significant. Because calling him Son of David, uh, this was also a title of the Messiah. In fact, in Jesus' day, this was uh, one of... The, one of the, or if not the most, uh, commonly used descriptions or phrases that people would use for the Messiah, because they recognized uh, from passages such as Jeremiah twenty three five, Isaiah eleven one, that this Messiah, this Savior that God would send, would be a descendant of King David. They would be coming after him and eventually to sit on on his throne. So this blind man, calling him son of David, he could see what others could not. That Jesus, hey, he's, he is the promised Savior who would be this descendant of King David. And he cries out to him, have mercy on me. Have mercy. This cry for this undeserved help. He knows he doesn't deserve it, but he's asking for this to be given to him. 
And then we see Jesus does, he stops, he notices, he has mercy on him. He responds to the faith that is in this man's heart and what is going on. It says, Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight, followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He said to him, I mean, it's an amazing thing enough. This man that was obviously had been blind and uh, people knew this, he was legitimately, genuinely healed. This was not a psychosomatic uh, thing. He is uh, made to be able to see. Jesus said, okay, recover your sight. And, and he does. And then Jesus says, your, your faith has made you well. Okay, we need to think about this so we don't misinterpret what Jesus is saying here. Because on one level, uh, yeah, his, his faith made him well. But really, when we think of everything the Bible teaches us, was it strictly his faith that made him well? well we recognize, well, it, it was Jesus that made him well. That Jesus made him well, but this man had to have, have faith for this. So I think to clarify, this is helpful, strictly speaking, it is not faith itself for us, if we think of salvation, it is not faith itself that saves but it is Christ that saves us through faith. If we think of this as a, um, a, a picture showing us what, what saving faith is like, because this man, we can see, he, I think he was, he was healed in more ways than one. He was physically healed of his blindness, but he saw who Jesus was as the Messiah, and he was receiving him as, as his, his Savior and his Lord, as we see. And salvation, when we have it, Scripture says over and over that it is received through faith. It is completely by Christ and what he did, what he was going to Jerusalem to do, the death that he was going to experience, his death and resurrection after living his perfect life. He was going there and doing this. And it had to be the the, the Son of Man, the Son of God, somebody of his uh, infinite value. It could only be him. And so it's 100% by the work of Jesus Christ and what he did. And it's 100% by grace. It's a free gift. It's not, I deserve it, give it to me. No, it's, it's by mercy. It's received by, by grace. It's undeserved. But we receive it through, through faith. I mentioned last week, I got an ear infection. And I still can't hear out of this ear. My eardrum burst and... So uh, just kind of on one side, but I think the infection is kind of under control, and so that is pretty much okay. I went to the doctor, and he prescribed me some antibiotics, and it's supposed to, you know, swallow these, you know, twice a day, and my ear would be better. Now, what if I thought, well, uh, my, my ear got better because of swallowing? I mean, is that true? Well, in, in a sense, it's true, but in another sense, uh, it's not just swallowing, it's because of the antibiotic, right? But I had to swallow in order to take the antibiotic. That's kind of what, what faith is, is like. Faith is kind of the means by which we receive the gift, by which we receive that really which can heal our hearts and our souls and our lives and take away our sins. You know, if I just 
uh, got the prescription and didn't do anything with it, or if I got the, you know, brought it home and, and looked at it, that's not going to help me too much. If I just, uh, you know, take out the little antibiotic pills and, you know, hold them in my hands and I learn to, you know, just uh, spend all day holding them or learn to juggle them or do this or I cuddle up with them, that, that's all great, but that, that's not really going to help me out. You know, in the same way, what Jesus did needs to be accepted, needs to be received through faith. So it's the antibiotics, technically, but it was received through swallowing. It's Christ that saves, but we receive this through trusting him. That's what faith is. It means we're placing your trust in him. Sometimes we talk about elements of saving faith. What does it mean when we talk about a faith made you well? And I think it's helpful to realize it includes at least three things. Knowledge, assent, and, and trust. It's not enough just to know about Jesus. I mean, that's part of it. That's, you need that. You need to know about it. And it's not enough just to know about it and agree that, yep, if I put my trust in Jesus, he would save me. They'd be like knowing about antibiotics and agreeing, yep, if I took them, I think I'd be better. But there's a third, there's a, there's a trust. Actually, actually receiving, actually casting yourself upon Jesus Christ as your Savior. Not just in theory, but actually, actually doing it. And that means you could have come to church over and over again and heard about this, and maybe you've agreed to it, but are you personally trusting in Jesus Christ? Have you personally called upon him and his mercy for him to save you? John Patton was a missionary to the, the New Hebrides. And when he was there working with these um, native people, he was looking for a word to translate as faith, to translate as, 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 as trust. And he couldn't find the right word. And how do you translate the New Testament? It's all over and over again saying we're saved by, by faith, by trusting, by believing. And he just couldn't find the right word in their language that really captured what needed to get across. And one time, uh, some men came back from a hunt. They were exhausted and they had the, their kill with them. And one of the men uh, came and he, he flopped down on a deck chair and exclaimed, my, it is good to stretch yourself out here and rest. And when Patton heard that, he realized, that's it. I'll use, I'll use that word for it to, to, to flop out here and, and rest to communicate to them what saving faith is. And that's what it is. Have, have you cast yourself upon Jesus? Are you resting on him alone as your Savior? Are you still trying to earn it yourself? Are you still trying to do your part or deny the fact that you're a sinner? Or have you rested your soul, your whole self, your eternal destiny on the one that was going, well, for us, went to Jerusalem and did what he did? And have you realized that, that he did that for you, to save you? Faith is resting on Jesus for salvation. And this blind man, he was, he was healed. The first thing he saw was Jesus. And he responded with, you can tell, with a changed heart. It says he followed Jesus. He glorified God. 
It doesn't say this directly in Scripture, but there's some indications that the reason that Mark's gospel names him is because he became a well-known person later on. And some scholars say that that Bartimaeus went on to become a well-known key leader in the church in Jerusalem. If God genuinely saves saves you by his grace, there there is a change that happens in your life that indicates that, that it is real. When others saw it, they glorified God as well. So I said you got these two points. When we put these together, we see that there's this theme of, of seeing or blindness in, in both of these. The disciples, they, they could not see what Jesus was plainly telling what happened to him. There was still some sort of spiritual blindness, something that was there that the truth was hidden from them. And that's the condition that all of us are in as sinners. We have, we have blind eyes. We, we don't see the truth. But we also see that Jesus can open blind eyes. That he, by, by his power, by his, by his mercy, can do this miracle of making blind eyes able to see. So putting these together, the question I want to ask you, the, the, the prayer that I have for you is, may God open your eyes to the truth of what Jesus did for you on the cross. May God open your eyes so that you can really actually see what Jesus did when he went to Jerusalem, when he suffered, when he died, when he rose for you. Because maybe you've heard the old, old story many times, and to you it's nothing but the old, old story. And you hear this, I've heard this before, and it just it makes you yawn. It's not something that, that makes you fall to your knees. It's not something that makes you say, this is, this is amazing grace. If that's true, may God cause the, the scales, may God cause the, the, the cataracts, the blindness to fall off your eyes so you can see the, the glory of how beautiful and how awesome it is, who God is and what he has done. You have eyes on your heart. Did you know that? Scripture talks about that. That's kind of a weird image. If you think of your, your heart you know, pumping and think of it with eyeballs all over it, Ephesians 1.18 says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Obviously, it's not talking about physical eyes. I mean, if, you're, if your heart actually had eyeballs on it, I don't know what it would be looking at, just your insides. But it says the eyes of your heart, these are, these are spiritual eyes to see spiritual truths. But as sinners, the eyes of our hearts are darkened. They're, they're blinded. That's why some people can hear the message over and over again and, eh, boring does nothing for me. I've heard it and don't care. But Christ can open those eyes. Jonathan Edwards described God's work as a, a divine and supernatural light which makes us see what is already there, a work of God that, just, that, that causes you, your, the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. I once was blind, but now I see, we sang. In Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be, I, I love the, the third verse. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. 
How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? If you're here, and if you realize that your heart is blind to God, you realize that you don't see this, that you don't care, well, what can you do? You know, I, I can't tell you, well, just heal yourself. Make your eyes, make, make your eyes blind, make your blind eyes see. You can't do that. You can't just will away your own blindness, just like a blind person can't just will away their, their physical blindness. But if, by God's grace, you're realizing this, by God's grace, you realize it's a problem, you can, you can call out to God, like this blind man. Pray to God, call out to Jesus to heal your blind eyes. If you're not even willing to do that, well, what excuse will you have on, on Judgment Day? I have blind eyes, and I didn't even care enough to call to God to, to heal my blind eyes. But if you're concerned, if you're realizing this is something that God is stirring your heart, good news, that means God is already at work in your heart. Call out to him. If by God's grace you're willing, know that Jesus is the power to heal the eyes of your heart. Call out to him for mercy. He died on the cross so that you can be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who one day will return in, in the clouds, and he will be revealed as, as the king that he is, and he will set up his, his dominion in a kingdom which will never end. And Lord, we also thank you that he came and fulfilled the prophecies to be the suffering servant in our place, to be pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, that the punishment that brings us peace with God was laid upon him, that he willingly took that up on the cross, that he went to Jerusalem with his eyes wide open, full of love to save us. And Lord, I thank you for those here that have had their eyes opened, that see you and, and love you. Because to really see you with the eyes of our heart is, is to love you, Lord God, because you are so lovely. You are so beautiful and awesome and glorious. And Lord God, I pray for anyone here that is still blind. I pray that you would work in their heart, that you would, you would prick their heart, give them the right conviction, that you would open their eyes so they could see this truth, so they would come to you and call upon you casting themselves fully upon you for your mercy and the salvation for the one that went to the cross for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.